I want to first speak to you about a gentleman. You probably heard his name before. A famous man, Thomas Jefferson, uh, the third U.S. president. And before he was president, he was a vice president, whatever. He's, he's always been, from the very founding of the United States, involved in high levels of government, very influential. And Jefferson is famous, at least in a way today, for what has been come to known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, he didn't set out to, to make a Bible or Bible translation, but he wrote a book. And, and the book that he wrote was actually a copy and paste job. And of course, in those days, you didn't have a word processor to do your copy and pasting. And so he actually had a copy of the, of the Word of God, and he took a razor and some glue and literally cut and paste portions of the gospel into this book where he was seeking to outline the ethical teachings of Jesus Christ. He saw in Jesus such amazing teachings, but he, did, he disbelieved all the miracles and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's, we got to cut through all that supernatural stuff and get down to what is the core of Jesus and his teachings, those ethical gems. And so he took his razor and his glue and he edited scripture until he came up with the Jefferson Bible. Now, what's incredible about that is he's not the first nor the last to take that as an undertaking, to decide to take the word of God and to choose which verses apply to me, which verses are true, and then which verses we ought to discard. Scholars do this all the time. You've probably heard of the Jesus Seminar. They, they sit around in the committee and, and vote on which teachings of Jesus they think is authentic or not. So scholars can do it. The wise and understanding can do it. And Christians can do it. People sitting in the pews, they can do it. Oh, not with a razor and glue, but we can read scripture and decide, well, you know, that one doesn't really apply to me. And I have good reasons why that doesn't apply to me. Or, or that particular passage, well, you see, in my circumstance, really what that passage is meaning is, is, quite, is quite narrow. And so, wow, I'm already obeying this. And so we can take the word of God and seek to justify ourselves and say, well, you know, we're doing pretty good in light of what scripture says. We just have to edit and massage and interpret it in such a way that I'm doing okay. That's what we call self-justification. And there is a man who comes up to Jesus and who is seeking to justify himself by so narrowing scripture that guess what? He's obeying the word of God. But Jesus points out that he's not, in fact, doing that. So look with me in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, and we'll see how this man edits God, edits the scripture in order to justify himself. Matthew 10, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first off, that question, isn't that a great question? Like, here comes like a, a slow ball right to Jesus. Knock it out of the park. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Wouldn't you love it if an unbeliever asked you that question? You know, it, it, would be, it would be my prayer and my hope that every single person in this church has asked that question or will ask that question. That we have our kids grow up. Mom, dad, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, what a great question that is. 
And so this lawyer, and this lawyer asks this question. Now, a lawyer in those days is not someone that we typically think of as going down to the courtroom and argue and debate and then, you know, help write contracts and things. But, but a lawyer was an expert in the law. And the law in those days was the law of God. So this lawyer is, is an expert in the scriptures. And so this is a man who, who knows the word of God from front to back, who, who has large portions of it memorized. And he is the expert to whom people go when they have questions about proper biblical interpretation. So an expert in the word of God is coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, before we get into Jesus' response, I want to point out the first two words that begin Luke 10, 25 where it says, and behold. Now this is significant. The and behold is significant because it attaches verse 25 and following with what has come before. So what has come before has happened. And now Luke, under the inspiration of the spirit says, and behold, this lawyer. So what's the connection? Well, look at me back in verse number 21. We see the last incident that Jesus was involved in. Luke 10, 21. It says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, last time we were in the Gospel of Luke, we looked at that text. But Jesus, in essence, is thanking God in a prayer that he has hidden the things of the kingdom, the things pertaining to eternal life from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The wise and the understanding are blind to the things of the kingdom, blind to eternal life. But these little children, it has been revealed to them the things of the kingdom and the things of eternal life. So right after Jesus says, the wise and understanding have been blinded, you have Luke saying, and behold, a lawyer comes to ask Jesus a question. Behold, here comes a wise and understanding man asking about eternal life, asking about the kingdom, and he doesn't see. He is going to justify himself. He is, he is going to try to, to use his wisdom and his understanding, but he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's blind. He's blind. And what, what a terrible state for that to, for, for a person to be in. To be wise and understanding and even wise and understanding when it comes to the word of God and yet blind to its real truth. And this is not just one pitiable man that this has happened to. This is a description of large swaths of religious people, large swaths of Christians even, who say, well, I know the word of God. I know what it says. And yet they're blind to its reality. They're, they're blind to its true understanding and its true significance. What a predicament to be in. I imagine here a, a man who's, who's blind, who cannot see, who's perishing because of thirst. And yet because of his lack of sight, can't see that the the water that he so hungers and thirsts after that would save his life is, is just within his reach, just a, a few yards away, but he can't see it. And so he perishes. 
And here's this man, an expert in the law. He has the word of God and now he's coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and he's blind to its truth. This, this word is, is not doing him the good that it, that it ought to do in his life. So certainly, a great fall is coming for this man and for those who do not learn from his example and who fall like him. And so he comes to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus answers and he answers with a question. Look what he says in verse 26. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So this man, we learn, asks a great question. And according to Jesus, gives a great response. Knowing the law as he does, knowing the scripture as he does, he comes to the conclusion that the the greatest thing that is required is to love God with every fiber of your being. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. At which point we're beginning to think, Well, that doesn't seem right. I thought we were saved by faith and faith alone. This man says, love God with every ounce of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, you're right. Now, is is Jesus just trying to, to show this man the futility of that? By saying, if it was possible... That you could love God with every fiber of your being. And if it was possible that you could love your neighbor as yourself, then yes, you get right into the kingdom. But, but nobody can actually do that. So is Jesus telling him to do something that he actually can't do? And is he, in one sense, misleading him by saying, you answered correctly. Now, if you do this, you'll live. Is Jesus here in disagreement with Paul that we're saved by faith? Is, is he meaning to say that we are actually saved by our works, that we're saved by our love for God and our love for our neighbor? And if we don't show love to our neighbor, that we will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is that what Jesus is saying? We would expect him to say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, just believe in me. That would be the, the typical answer you would hear today in most evangelical churches. Just believe. Do you believe? Then you're in. But Jesus says, you've answered correctly to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a puzzle that I want to turn to another passage of scripture to answer it clearly. So take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of James. James chapter two. As you turn to the right in your Bibles, if you you get to the book of Hebrews, you're getting close. The very next book is James And James chapter 2. Keep your finger in Luke 10. We're going to come back there. So if you're feeling a tension between faith and works here and faith and love here, that's good. And we're going to turn to James to, to see the answer of this tension. 
Look with me in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read from 14 to 18. Now James the Apostle says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What James is saying here is that there is such a thing as a dead faith and a living faith. A dead faith is a faith without works. It is not a true faith. It is not a saving faith. If you have that kind of faith, then you are shut out of the kingdom of God. You will not enter. There might be an understanding. There might be a comprehension. There might be an assent to true things. But if that faith is alone, apart from works, it is a dead faith and it is unable to save. A living faith is a faith that produces works. A faith that is connected to works and it can't be divorced or separated. It can be distinguished and differentiated, but never separated, never divided. And that's a faith that saves. And so this is helpful to understand Jesus' response to this man as he talks about loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, what I want to do is explain, well, why does James talk about this? Why is James talking about a dead faith and a living faith? We see here in verse number 15 about this brother or sister poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and and you don't help him or her. What kind of faith is that? That's that's not a, a living faith. It's a dead faith. But this discussion about a dead faith and a living faith actually begins earlier in James 2. And I want you to go there with me. Verse number 5. And I want to show you what scripture James was expounding whenever he began to talk about a dead faith and a living faith. Okay, that, that dead faith, living faith, it might be familiar to you, but, but maybe this part of why James gets there is less familiar. So look at James 2, starting in verse 5. It says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? We'll stop there for a second. That's what James is saying. Who's the kingdom for? Who enters the kingdom? Who has eternal life? Didn't God promise it to those who love him? Those who love God? James is saying, those who love God enter the kingdom. That's what he's saying here. He's like, you know this, brothers. Listen. And then verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. See what James is saying here? Brothers, you know that God has called those who love him into his kingdom. 
but you are not loving your neighbor. You're not loving your neighbor. You're showing preferential treatment, partiality to the rich and not caring for the poor, which demonstrates something is wrong there. That the faith you claim to have is, is disconnected from its inevitable fruit. You say you love God and you know it is those who love God that enter the kingdom, but you are not loving your neighbor as yourself. And so that kind of faith is a dead faith. And what's interesting, when James talks about a dead faith and a living faith, he is expounding love God and love neighbor as yourself as what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God. The very same thing that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 10. And so there's no contradiction in Jesus' mind, in James' mind, about faith and about love for God and love for neighbor. Love is the expression of our faith and a reliance upon God. And as we rely upon God and believe him and take him at his word and we have faith in him, oh, we will love him and we'll love our neighbors as, we're, as ourselves. It is necessarily connected. And if you don't love God, well, then your faith is dead. If you don't love your neighbor, then your faith is dead. It's worthless. It's unable to save. And so going back to Luke 10, What Jesus is saying here, when he says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live in verse 28 in Luke 10. Jesus is saying here is that you are orthodox in your creed, but your deeds don't back it up. In your understanding of scripture, you have it right. You passed the doctrinal test. You've got the statement of faith right. You, you read the scripture wisely, but you don't do it. You say you believe, but your faith is dead. It's not producing love for God, and it's not producing a love for your neighbor. That's Jesus' point when he says, you've answered correctly, now do this, and you will live. As I've mentioned before, there are a great many like this man. A great many who know the scriptures. A great many who are pressed to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. And yet they have a dead faith. And a faith that will not save. A faith that will bar them entrance into the kingdom of God. Where Jesus will say, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. May that not be anyone here. That we, that we know these truths and yet we do not act upon these truths. We know it is by faith in Christ, but we don't exercise faith. We don't trust Christ. We don't take him at his word. We don't love God. We don't love our neighbor. And we stay content with a dead faith that will not save. Now, how did this man respond? Look at verse 29. Verse 29 in Luke 10. But he, this man, desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, if it wasn't for the and behold at the beginning of verse 25, where we, okay, here comes a wise and understanding man who's blind. If it wasn't for that, and if it wasn't for this comment in verse 29, he desiring to justify himself, we might assume that this question is an honest, legitimate question. How do, how do I fulfill your command, Lord Jesus? 
What, what does it look like to love my neighbor? But he's not asking, what does it look like to love my neighbor? He's not seeking to submit himself to Jesus' instruction to do this and you will live. But when he asks, who is my neighbor? He is seeking to justify himself. That is, to see himself as righteous, to see himself as okay, to see himself as good. And so he is going to ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? Expecting the response to come back in such a way where he can say, I love my neighbor. I'm doing it. And so by your own admission, I have eternal life. Now the Jews in Jesus day, the lawyers and others, they would define love for neighbor in a, in a very narrow sense. Okay. They would really reduce that scope. They would argue like this. Well, my neighbor is not caring for the poor because the poor obviously are poor because they're suffering under the hand of God. They're being judged by God. That's why they're poor. They're sinners. If they were righteous, God would reward them with wealth and health and prosperity. And so obviously the fact that they're poor tells us that they're no, no friends of God. And so they're no friend of mine. The sinners and the tax collectors, oh, you bet they're not our neighbors. Look at them. They're so sinful. God surely hates them. And so we should also hate them. Are the Gentiles our neighbors? Of course not. Because the Gentiles, oh, they, they eat swine flesh. Those unclean people. Even if I, if I walk onto their soil, I need to wash off my feet. I can't even enter into their household lest I be unclean. So certainly they're not my neighbor. I have no responsibility to love them. Even those who might be close to the Jewish nation like the Samaritans. Oh, certainly they're not my neighbor. A bunch of half-breeds mixed in with other Canaanite blood and have a, have a perverted and twisted view of the scriptures. They're not my neighbors. They're under the judgment of God. I loathe them with a holy hatred. And they would continue and basically define your neighbor as being just this inner circle of these elite religious folks. And they can all affirm one another that they're all righteous and following God's word. And so this man seeking to justify himself expected a similar answer from Jesus. But of course, Jesus didn't aid him in his self-justification. But rather, Jesus tells this parable. Look at me at verse number 30 through verse 37. I love how Jesus answers. He answers at first with the question and now with the story. All meaning, and again, the point of Jesus asking questions and telling parables is because he wants his listener to indict himself, not justify himself. When Jesus preaches, he doesn't want everyone to go away patting themselves on the back, feeling justified. He wants them to be broken. I am a sinner, Lord. I need grace. That's what he does here. So verse number 30, Jesus replied to the man and he told this parable. A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, 
came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus says to the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now this story is a story that is not far-fetched. All of Jesus' parables are, are very real to life. And there was a road from Jerusalem down to Jericho that was a very treacherous and dangerous road. Huge, huge elevation drop going through the wilderness, going down to the Jordan River Valley. Lots of caves and crevices and cliffs. No towns, no water, no, no nothing. A great place for bandits to, to hide out in the cliffs and, and wait for a traveler to come who they think they could overpower. That's why they would travel in caravans in that day. And so here comes a lone man who was then robbed, beaten, stripped, and then left for dead on the side of the road. A common thing that could happen on this road. And then Jesus describes a priest, one who is a descendant of Aaron, who works in the temple, a holy man who comes by and does not help this man. And then a Levite comes by. Now, a Levite is, is not quite a priest, not a, not a descendant of Aaron, but he is a descendant of Levi. And the Levites were entrusted to be the helpers and the assistants in the temple. So another man who works in the temple, whose employment is to facilitate the worship of God. He knows the word. And he goes by this man. And then a Samaritan comes. That's this half-breed, mixed race, doctrinally deficient, oh, unclean. And he comes and he helps the man. And he binds this man's wounds, puts him on his own donkey, brings him to an inn, pays two denarii, two days wages, be enough to care for this man for weeks. Says, I'll pay more if if you need more. Stayed the night with him to tend with his wounds to make sure he made the night. And then Jesus asks, who is the neighbor to this man? And the answer is obvious. Who this man neighbor, who this man's neighbor was. Now, this story does a number of things, and Jesus shares it for a number of reasons. But I want to share with you three things that this story does that is important for us to realize. First, this account, this story, this parable, this shocks, this scandalizes everyone who heard it. When Jesus would have said this, his hearers would have been so angry with him. Because of who is the hero of the story. This hated, despised people. They would have been scandalized. They would have been shocked. You know, Jesus is not a seeker-sensitive preacher. Tickling their ears. He says something that he knows are going to infuriate them. What a surprise in this story that this Samaritan would actually be the man who cares for and helps this man. And they would think, wow, that's, 
That's so shocking. That's, that's not realistic. That's, there's no way a Samaritan would love like that. It's an incredible love. It's too good to be true. We shock them. Secondly, this story answers the question, who is my neighbor? It answers the question, who is my neighbor? When this man says, who is my neighbor? And he was trying to justify himself. But Jesus actually gave him an answer to who is your neighbor. Now, the neighbor is not just this, this inner circle of those who are just like you. But the point of Jesus' parable here is, rather than asking, who is my neighbor? So I can justify myself and saying, I love my neighbor. I'm okay. I don't need to change. I'm good. But to rather ask, who is it in your life that needs your help whereby you can be a neighbor to them? That's the point. You are to love your neighbor in the sense of you are to love those who are in need and where you can care for those needs, where you can help them. Now, he's not saying to this Samaritan that he is an exemplar of loving neighbor because he was working to end world poverty. There are things that are beyond our ability to do. But to be a good neighbor means those that are around us, that we have the ability to help, needs that we're aware of, where we have something to meet that need, then we ought to do that. That is true love. To be a neighbor, rather than asking, who is my neighbor, so I don't have to love them. And the third thing that Jesus does with this parable, he scandalizes those listening, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And then thirdly, he presses the lawyer to obey this truth. Back in verse number 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. His answer is right, but obviously his conduct and his way of life is deficient. You're not doing this. You know it, but you're not doing it. And so he tells this story. And at the end of this story, verse number 37, Jesus said to him, his last words to him, you go and do likewise. Here's what deficient in this man. He didn't do what he knew to be true. He had the creed, didn't have the deed. No action, no works that flowed from that faith, that professed faith. And so Jesus presses him, you go and do likewise. Apply this truth, do this and you will live. Do this and go and do this likewise. But this man was bent on justifying himself. We don't know how this, the rest of the story goes, or what happened to this man after this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. But all we have is that he sought to justify himself. Now we can look at a man like this and say, wow, that's incredible. For a guy like that who, who knows so much of the Bible, even, even talking to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, being told this parable, and yet he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to to edit scripture and reduce the scope of it so it doesn't really apply to him and trying to find a way out so he can see himself as a good person. Well, it's awful what he's doing. Until we ask, well, well, how are we like him? How, how do we do this in our own setting? How do we read scripture? And someone says, yep, that's true. That's orthodox. But then we justify ourselves to, to skirt out underneath its, its weight. So we don't actually ob- obey this. We don't actually do this. We can, we can remain in our, in our weak, in our dead faith. 
And I want to give you a number of ways in which we can do the very same thing that this man was doing. A way, a way that we justify ourselves when we're confronted with the truth of God's word. Okay, I'm going to give you five ways in which we can do that today. Now, as I share these ways, again, so if you're just, uh, if you're, if you're just tuning back in here now or, or your attention is, is fixed, these five ways that I'm about to share with you are not good things. Okay? These five things are our things to avoid. These are, these are fallacies. These are errors. These are pitfalls. Don't do this. But these are ways in which we can justify ourselves and not do what the scriptures call us to do. The first is this. I call this the exceptional fallacy. The exceptional fallacy. And what I mean by the exceptional fallacy is that we come to a portion of scripture and it demands of us a change of mind, a change of behavior, a change of devotion or passion. And we say, I can't because my situation is unique. This is true. I know that. But my situation is different. When a man might be pressed with the passage in Ephesians 5.25 to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and to wash her in the water of the word, he might say, yes, that's true. But you don't know my wife. But you don't know my marriage. You, you don't know the history. You, you, you don't know. To one who is pressed to, to be before the Lord in prayer and to be in his word, says, well, you don't know my work schedule. You, you don't know the demands on my time. You, you, don't, you don't know the people that I, I work with. You don't know my unbelieving husband. In other words, my situation is unique and I'm exempted from some of these truths. Or at the very least, they're narrowed down to apply to maybe just a portion of my life and not to that area. And anytime someone says, but you don't know my, and fill in the blank, what they mean to say is, if you only were me, then you would justify me just like I'm justifying myself. That's what it's saying. If, if only you knew, because if you did know, you would justify me. You would say, you're all right. And why do we say that? Because we've justified ourselves. We exempted ourselves from the scriptures. And we have to ask, is this, is this how you would justify yourself? Is this what you do to the word of God? You, you can imagine the priest and the Levite doing this. You can imagine the priest walking down that road and seeing that man on the side of the road and say, well, I would help him. That's right and true to help him, but... I'm a priest and if, if I touch, he's, he's probably dead. And if I touch a dead body, I'm unclean. I won't be able to fulfill my duties at the temple. So I, I'm exempted. You can imagine the Levite having a similar reaction. Oh, you don't understand. I'm, I'm, I'm a busy, I'm, I'm heading somewhere. I got an important appointment. And so normally I would stay and help, but I can't now. And so I'm exempted from this instruction to love my neighbor. They justify themselves. By saying their situation is unique. There's an exemption to it. That's the first. The exceptional fallacy. Number two. Another way that we can justify ourselves. Is the ineffective fallacy. The ineffective fallacy. And what I mean by this. Is to say. Whenever we're confronted with the truth of scripture. Is to say. Well you know. I've tried to obey that. And it didn't work. 
And so now I'm not really going to do those things any longer. You can imagine a husband saying, you know, I've tried to love my wife in self-sacrificing ways and she just thought I was manipulating her. So I'm not going to do that again. That passage is, it, I, I've tried it, but it's just, just not working for me. And so it's, a, it's an ineffective fallacy. It's a way for us to, to write off that passage of scripture and not continue to seek to obey it. You can imagine someone who said, well, I've, I've tried to read and to pray before and I've tried to ask God to, to rid me of this particular sin and, and I've labored for it and, and he didn't answer and it, and it didn't work. And so I'm just going to continue doing this. It's God's fault, really. His word is ineffective. And again, we, we excuse ourselves and we justify ourselves by saying his word is ineffective. You can imagine the priest and the Levite doing something similar. You can imagine them walking down that road and having the same fallacy, this ineffective fallacy by saying, well, you know, the last time I was on that road and helped somebody, I was robbed. And I'm not going to do that again. And so there's a good reason why we're not going to obey that passage of scripture because it didn't work before. Is this how you justify yourself? Is this how you justify disobedience and, and declare yourself righteous? The third fallacy is what I call the unattainable fallacy. The unattainable fallacy. And what I mean by this one is that we come to certain portions of scripture that seem to command us something that is so lofty and so grand that there's no way we could do it. You know, love your wife by laying down your life for her. You know, be holy as God is holy. There's no way we can be holy as God is holy. And so I'm sure what he means is to, to do the best that you can. And I'm doing the best I can. And so I'm okay. I'm justified. I'm righteous. You can imagine the priest and the Levite, same way. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no way He's meaning to help people, everyone in need, no matter who they are around me. No, there's no way. It, it must be more narrow than that. And so we say certain commands or certain portions of scripture are unattainable. They're too lofty. And so we reduce the scope and we, and we make the command smaller, less comprehensive. And we tend to, as we reduce the scope of a certain command, we reduce it to the point where right in that sweet spot where we're obeying it perfectly. And we can say, hey, good, I'm doing a good job. I'm obeying this. The unattainable fallacy. Another fallacy in which we can justify ourselves is the temporary fallacy. The temporary fallacy. This fallacy is when we are confronted with the word of God. We know what it says. We understand it. And we say, yes, that is true. That is good. I want to obey that, but I just can't right now. It's like a woman who's approached because she's living with another man who's not her husband. She's, she's pointed out in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7 about unequally being yoked. And she sees that. She understands that. She knows that and says, I agree with that. I want that. But we're getting there. We'll be married soon. He, he's close to becoming a Christian. And so I know I'm not quite obeying the word of God, but this is a temporary stay on God's commands because of what is going to come. And so we excuse ourselves and justify ourselves because we soon will 
obey this portion of scripture. And again, is that how you justify yourself? Is that what you tell yourself to say, it's okay, I'm in a good spot. The word of God doesn't really apply to my situation. And we go away feeling justified. And fifth and finally, this is another way we can justify ourselves. This one I call the priority fallacy. The priority fallacy. And what I mean by this one is that we're confronted with the truth of scripture. Just like love your neighbor. Take any other, other scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ brings to us and says, this is what it means to follow me. And we, we read that, we know it, we understand it, and we say, I would do that, I want to do that, but there's another command over here that is keeping me from obeying that one. And so, well, the Lord wants me to keep this command, so I got to keep this one. I see this most often when, when men or even others are dealing with sin of lust and pornography. And you, and you go to Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And we know that. But we very rarely realize that the very next words out of Jesus' mouth, in the same breath, he says, and if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. It is better for you to be maimed and to enter into the kingdom of God than it is for you to have all of your members, your whole body intact, and be cast into hell. Now, when that confronts us, we can commit this priority fallacy. We can say, okay, well, I know Jesus is not talking about cutting off my my physical hand and plucking out my physical eye. But Jesus is calling you to take radical measures to deal with the sin in your life. And most often, this is going to be getting rid of your phone, your computer, screen, whatever, whatever it is that you're taking in this material. That's the easy thing to do. But then there's the, the but. But I, but I need my screen and I need my phone and I need my computer because, you know, God has called me to provide. And so I, I need that to provide. And so I need to provide it. And God has called me to, to be connected with my family. And, and that provides me connected with my family. And so I have all these other commands here that require this thing, these things to fulfill. And so there's no way I can do that. And, it, and it's as if to say, you know, you, you need your, your phone and you need your screen. You need your computer just as much as someone needs their right eye in their hand that Jesus says to cut off and to cast away from you. That's necessary, your right hand, isn't it? And But we commit this fallacy and we pit God's commands against one another and then we leave feeling justified. Here with love for neighbor, we can say, well, yeah, I gotta love my neighbor, but... Got to love my wife first and my children after that. And so I don't really have much to care for a, for a neighbor here. But we're supposing that God's commandments are somehow incoherent and contradictory. As if you can't be a faithful husband and also love your neighbor. We can do all those things. Now this list could be expanded. All these different fallacies. All these ways that we justify ourselves. There's a reason why Jesus calls these people the wise and understanding. We're very clever at finding many ways to excuse ourselves from the weight of Scripture and to justify ourselves. We're very creative in doing this. But the point here is that we don't want to be the wise and understanding who, who excuse ourselves from Scripture, but we want to be those who, 
who not only have faith and know the truth, but those who, who live the truth. Those who not only claim to believe, but that belief is evidenced in our love for God and in our love for the neighbor. That we, have, that we do have a creed, a doctrinal confession, but we also do have deeds, works in keeping with that repentance, with that faith, with that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we consider Jesus' words here, I want to press this a little bit further because we've seen here a, a negative example in this man. He's the wise and understanding who are blinded to the things of the kingdom. Now, Jesus says he has concealed the kingdom to these wise and understanding ones and has revealed them to little children. So I want to consider what it'd be like not for the wise and understanding, this, this self-righteous, self-justifying man to ask Jesus these questions, but what would it be for someone who has childlike faith to ask the same question to Jesus? What, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, well, doubtless the answer would be the same. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you answered correctly. And he says, and do this and live. And, and, and a childlike faith would come to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the weight of that command to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus says, do this and live, you won't be finding ways to try to justify yourself. But you'll be saying, well, how, Lord, can I obey this? Yes, Lord, that's good. Oh, Lord, I'm a sinner. I don't love my neighbor as I ought. I don't love God as I ought. So, so Lord, help me. What do I do? That would be the response of someone who's, who's not seeking to justify themselves, but recognize that, that they have no righteousness and they need the help of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same way as we're pressed with other commands of Scripture. When a man is pressed with laying down his life for his wife, rather than saying, oh, yeah, I do that. Well, I, I, I can't do that and commit all those other fallacies. Who say, yes, Lord, that's right, that's true. I need help. How do I do that, Lord? I want to do that. Wives to their husbands and, and mothers to their children. You must love your children. Oh, Lord, you know my heart towards my children sometimes. I want to love them. How do I do that, Lord? Help me, Lord. I want to obey your commands. I don't want to justify myself. I want to be faithful before you. I want to produce fruit of righteousness. And so, so how, Lord, do I do that? That would be the response of someone with childlike faith. Lord, how can I be holy? You say, be holy as God is holy. How do I do that, Lord? How do I pray? Isn't that what the disciples asked for? Lord, teach us to pray. Oh, Lord, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. I need more of that, Lord. Wouldn't that be our response? We come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I want to love you. I want to love my neighbor. How do I do that, Lord? Help me. Now, when Jesus says, do this and you will live. And then verse 37, you go and do likewise. I want to address that question of how do we do this? How do we do this? Coming from that attitude, not of self-justifying attitude. We say, Lord, that's right and true. How do I love you and my neighbor as myself? I want to enter the kingdom. How do I do that, Lord? Let me answer that question in two ways. Firstly, we must be clear that the self-justifying person cannot love his neighbor as himself. 
If you are a self-justifying person, you will not be able to love your neighbor as yourself. A person who justifies themselves will do something in order to prove or to authenticate their own perceived righteousness. So you can imagine that priest and Levite objecting to Jesus' story and say, well, you know, Jesus, if we would have known we would have been in that story, we would have done something different. Because what are our friends going to think of us that we didn't help that poor man? We didn't know that you were going to tell people. If people would have known that, we would have, we would have helped because, hey, our reputation is on the line. Now, if we are motivated to love others because of our reputation, because of their applause, their approval, our status in the world, whatever it might be, we we all know that's not true love. You're just using those people in order to get what you really want. So if you're seeking to justify yourself, then your actions towards your fellow man will inevitably be selfish, not loving. Now, you might be thinking, well, it might be better for someone Rather than trying to justify themselves, rather, rather do these deeds because they know not just their fellow man is watching, but they know God is watching. And you can imagine that priest and Levite thing, well, I know God is watching me, so I want, I want God to, to be pleased with me. And I, I want God to, to welcome me into his kingdom. And so I'm going to do these good works so when God sees them, he'll be happy with me. And, and, he'll, and he'll let me into his kingdom. He'll recognize I'm a good person. Now, God knows our motive. And so God knows that the very things that you're doing, because you think you have his eyes upon you, and you're trying to, to get in his good book so he'll allow you into his kingdom, well, he knows you're just using him and you're using this good deed to try to save your own skin. It's still a selfish motivation. See, if you're trying to justify yourself before men or trying to justify yourself before God, the same problem exists. You can't, you can't do it. It's, it's not true love. It is selfish. It's, it's, all, it's all inward rather than outward. And so a self-justifying person cannot love his neighbor as himself. Can't do this. That's the first truth. Secondly, This kind of love, this love for God, this love for neighbor can only be an overflow of Christ's example and Christ's work in you. Christ is the only answer to this dilemma of how do I love God and love my neighbor as myself? Christ is the answer. And I want to show you that from another passage of scripture. Um, Go back to James and a little bit to the right. The the next book after James is 1 Peter. And I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse number 20. And I want to show you this because this is Peter addressing this very question that I'm asking. How can we, sinful creatures, love God and love our neighbor, do that hard thing when everything within us is, is sinful and tainted with all kinds of corruption? How can we do that? So in 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 20, listen to what the Apostle Peter says. He says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good 
and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What Peter is talking about is doing good and suffering for it. It's not, it's not a good thing, not a righteous thing. If you're obnoxious and you suffer because of it. You know, if, if, you're, if you're doing all kinds of sinful things and, and consequences come upon you, there's nothing commendable about that. But if you are doing good, if you are loving God, you're loving your neighbor, you are, you are practicing righteousness, and, and you receive suffering and persecution because of that, and yet you endure, you do not faint, you do not grow weary in doing good, oh, then you are to be commended. This is the gracious thing in the sight of God. And so he's addressing this very thing about obeying God when it's hard, when it's easy for us to make an objection. Because, you know, we can, in times of persecution and suffering, it's like, Lord, I would normally obey you, but, you know, the pressure is such that I think it's probably wise not to continue now. And we excuse ourselves and we compromise. But Peter is talking about an uncompromising faith that continues to do the things that God calls us to do, even when it is difficult and involves our suffering. Look how he continues in verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called, that is to suffer while doing good. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now what this passage is saying for us is is two things. First, Christ is our example. Christ is our example of one who continues to be faithful in times of adversity. Continues to obey God in times of difficulty and suffering and persecution when they reviled him and mocked him, scorned him, shamed him. He continued to entrust himself to God, not trying to justify himself, but entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. And so Peter says, follow his example. We see the same thing here in the story of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, he tells this man, follow his example. Follow the example of the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. And we see there's something special about this Samaritan who is, who is willing to stop and help this man and even to stay the night with him and care for his wounds and then even to pay two days wages to pay the expenses for this man to stay at this inn for a few weeks. Like, wow, it's, it's incredible. Very loving of him. What an example. And when Peter says, look at the example we have in Christ, it's like that good Samaritan example is set to the extreme. Because in that good Samaritan story, as we try to fit ourselves into that story, we're like, well, I don't want to be the priest or Levite. I don't want to be unloving and just be that religious person who's not really true to his profession. What we don't realize is, is that story is very similar to the story of Jesus Christ coming to redeem sinners. And rather than us being the good Samaritan or us not being the priest and the Levite, in that story, we're actually that, 
that person who's half dead on the side of the road. And we're in need of help. And here comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like the Samaritan despised and scorned and rejected, hated by his own people. And despite the hatred, continues on his mission to care for those who are weak and poor and wretched. And not only did Jesus give his money and his time, but he gave his own life. He died. He suffered in our place so that we could be restored from that ditch from perishing and then to be revived and given new life. And so look to the Samaritan, yes, but look to the, to the greater one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our example of what it means to love your neighbor. It's incredible. But even more than that, Christ is more than our example. Look at verse number 24 in 1 Peter 2. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ is more than an example. There is something effective about his death that makes it not just an example to be imitated, but makes it an accomplishment that has its effect. And what it says here is that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's what he did so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a connection here. There's a There's an act and then there's a necessary consequence. Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners so that necessarily we would die to our sin, that we would have our guilt and our sin all removed and all pardoned and that we would live to righteousness. That by his stripes we're in fact healed. That we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so what this is talking about is not only is Christ our example of what it looks like to love neighbor and to love God, he did that perfectly, but through his death and his resurrection, he actually makes that an inward reality within us. He forgives our sin and he pours his love into us and he gives us his spirit such that we can actually love God and love our neighbor with a pure motive because we've been justified not by ourselves, Not by our deeds, whether in the sight of man or in the sight of God, but we are justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and a free gift of his grace. And so now we love God with a sense of gratitude and of joy and devotion because of what he's done. And we love our neighbor, oh, because Christ has so loved us and his love is is overflowing from us towards our neighbor around us. We're compelled to love others because of the love that we've received. Now, we don't love in order to, to earn God's love. No, that's a, that's a self-justifying love. A justification that has come from God makes us truly loving. And so this is the point of Jesus' instructions here in Luke chapter 10. Now, as we go back to the very beginning of this discussion, it started with this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To which we get the answer, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And to which we must realize this is impossible without the love of Christ in you. This is impossible without the love of Christ in you. And so if you are one who desires to lay hold of eternal life, to lay hold of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, then you must lay hold of Christ. You must see in Christ. Not only your example, 
but the one who has died in the place of your sin, thereby forgiving you and now freeing you to love God and to love others. That he has overcome your weakness. He has overcome your sin. He has overcome these, these hooks that are within you that are seeking to bring you down to the depths of hell. He set you free. And now you're free to love him and you're free to love others with a pure love. And so what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? I must cling to Christ. That's, that's the very root. You must know him. You must have a, a faith in him that will translate into a love for him and an obedience towards him. Not that we're saved by our love or by our obedience, but by our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so do not leave from this place seeking to justify yourself saying, well, you know, I think, I'm, I, think I love God enough. I think I love my neighbor enough. And we fall so short. Not one of us here will be justified based on our love for others or our love for God. But the question is, do you have Christ? Are you entrusting yourself to him who judges rightly? Is, is, is your life, is your death, is all your hope in Christ and in Christ alone? That's the point. That's what it means to inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its weight that presses down upon us and it squeezes out our sin and all of our weak excuses until we're left with nothing. Nothing save Christ. And then we behold the precious Savior who came to this earth to die a criminal's death. Oh, so that wretched sinner such as us could be saved. Oh, we thank you for Christ. Oh, may he motivate us in his example and the spirit within us to love you with a whole heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. Oh, God, help us not to be people deceived with our faith disconnected from our works. Oh, God, save anyone here from, from a delusion that they are truly yours when they are not. Oh, God, may we all cling to Christ and may you produce a work of grace within us, O oh God, that would mount up with great love towards you and towards others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.